January 3rd, 2023. The new year has barely begun, but Israel's far right has decided to start with intense provocation of the Palestinians. This is the newly appointed Israeli National Security Minister and far-right Jewish supremacist Itamar Ben-Gavir. Ben-Gavir decided to start the new year with a highly inflammatory and provocative visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem. He told the cameras that, quote, Temple Mount is the most important place for the people of Israel. Ben-Gavir's incursions at Al-Aqsa sparked instant anger and consternation, followed by accusations that the newly appointed Israeli government were seeking to alter the status quo. But what is the status quo at Al-Aqsa? Why is Ben-Gavir's incursion so inflammatory? And what does the holy site mean for Palestinians? I'm Hugo Goodrich. Welcome back to The New Arab Voice. Situated in East Jerusalem, this 35-acre piece of holy land holds a significance for the three main Abrahamic faiths. The history of the site is as long as it can be unclear, with biblical scriptures serving as the foundation for many ideas. The Jewish faith believes that it was the site of the two biblical temples and referred to the site as Temple Mount. The first was known as Solomon's Temple and is believed to have stood between the 10th and 6th centuries BCE. According to the Bible, this was plundered and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar II when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem in 598 BCE. The second temple, later known as Herod's Temple, was constructed between 516 BCE and 70 CE. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans during the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 CE. For Christians, the site is important due to its links to the life of Jesus, but much Christian worship in the city has moved to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. For Islam, the Al-Aqsa compound holds great significance. The central structure, which is a shrine and not a mosque, is the Dome of the Rock instantly recognisable by the large golden dome. Inside, it contains some of the finest and most ornate examples of Islamic art ever created. The rock, held under the golden dome, is revered by Muslims as the place where the Prophet Muhammad began his miraculous night journey and ascended into heaven. Initial construction of the central structure began in the late 7th century, during the rule of the Umayyad Caliph Abdul Malik. At the southern end of the complex is the highly significant Ghibli Mosque, sometimes known as Al-Aqsa Mosque. It was first built by the second Rashidun Caliphate Umar Khattab, who ruled from 634 to 644 CE. Since its first construction, it has been damaged by earthquakes and attacks, and restored by all the rulers of the day, including the Umayyad, Abbasid, Fatimid, Ayyubid and Ottoman empires. From 1187 and the Muslim reconquest of Jerusalem, 
the Al-Aqsa Mosque complex has been governed by some form or another of Islamic Waqf, the Islamic Institution of Religious Endowments. When it comes to historical and religious significance, the Al-Aqsa complex is a contender for the top title. And in the face of decades of oppressive and discriminatory policies, it has taken on a further symbolic significance for the Palestinian movement. Al-Aqsa is a symbol of the Palestinian struggle against Israeli policies that seek to entrench Jewish supremacy. Uh, my name is Noor Arafa. I'm a fellow at the Malcolm H. Care Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. Noor's research focuses on the political economy of the Middle East and North Africa and on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And what's happening at Al-Aqsa with Israel trying to assert Jewish control is essentially a microcosm of what's going on in Jerusalem more broadly. So it's Al-Aqsa has become like a battleground that unites Palestinians because it's a symbol of Palestinian national identity and also a symbol of Palestinian cultural life. So it is a political site and not only a religious one. Such political solidarity with the status of Al-Aqsa has been seen a number of times in recent years. A notable instance was in 2017 when Israel decided to install metal detectors at the entrances around the complex and were met with a broad and persistent coalition of protests. These eventually succeeded and the then government of Benjamin Netanyahu reversed the decision. It's at the heart of the issue of power imbalance, the asymmetry of power between Palestinians and Israeli Jews. And that's why Palestinians are against Jewish worship at the mosque, which is in violation of the status quo arrangement, because it's a means to assert Jewish sovereignty over Al-Aqsa. And this is part of the larger Zionist project that has always uh, sought to Judaize Jerusalem and ensure uh, Jewish uh, supremacy over the city. When you hear of Al-Aqsa, you will also frequently hear of the status quo. But what exactly is the status quo? The status quo relates to a series of understanding originating after the 1967 war. This is Dr. Nimrod Goran, a senior fellow for Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute and president of the Mitvim Institute, a foreign policy think tank based in Israel. During the Six-Day War in 1967, Israel, in defiance of international law, occupied East Jerusalem, where the Al-Aqsa complex is located. This occupation, which placed East Jerusalem under domestic Israeli law, was condemned internationally. And when, in 1980, Israel instituted the Basic Law, declaring Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel, the UN issued Resolution 478, stating, quote, all legislative and administrative actions taken by Israel, the occupying power, which have altered or purport to alter the character of the status of the holy city of Jerusalem, and in particular the recent basic law on Jerusalem, are null and void. Following the illegal occupation in 1967, Israel and the Islamic Waqf, responsible for the administration of the holy site, came to an agreement, the status quo. And it sets the rules of the game. Basically it says... People of non-Muslims can visit but not pray. It puts limitations on placing national symbol in the compound. It requires coordination in any archaeological work or maintenance. 
it sets some protocols for security and policing. So it tries to find a solution in which the different sides can somehow manage this very sensitive place uh, without leading uh, to all kinds of escalations from it. It worked relatively well, especially until the late 90s. We remember what happened in 2000 with Ariel Sharon and the consequences. Since then, there was all kind of bumps on the way, but definitely it's in place for almost 60 years. And generally it's working and it enables the sides to continue the situation which is yet to be resolved. At a basic level, the Islamic Waqf has the authority over the management and administration of the holy site. For this task, it is funded and supported by Jordan. It is the Waqf that is supposed to set out rules about who can and cannot pray at the site and have the discretion to make other decisions that relate to the management of the site. Beyond the limits of the site in occupied East Jerusalem, Israel maintains control over access to the complex. The status quo agreement is not a solution or a basis for any sort of lasting peace between Israel and Palestine. It was conceived as a way to maintain a balance and prevent the site from becoming a perpetual flashpoint for violence. Or at least that was the idea. We see actors on the ground from both sides trying to change the status quo towards a situation in which one side has more control over the site than the other, and therefore it leads to friction. So currently the attempts to change or update the status quo are geared from a zero-sum perspective, not a win-win one. And Noor Arafay. Israel has been violating the status quo, especially following Sharon's visit in 2000. That's Ariel Sharon, at the time opposition leader and later prime minister. For example, now, Israeli officers have control over who can enter Al-Aqsa. They are the ones who can restrict Muslim worship whenever they want. And Israeli police officers can storm the compound whenever they want and arrest whoever they want. And at the same time, Jews are often allowed to pray quietly on the compound in violation of the status quo. If you look at the headline of the status quo, then you can say that it works up to a point. Frequent bouts of major violence are avoided, but not always. The second intifada followed Sharon's visit in 2000, and a violent Israeli assault in May 2021 sparked conflict in Gaza. The reality of the situation on the ground is that the status quo is subject to numerous violations on an almost daily basis. These violations don't always lead to waves of violence, but they do represent a slow but consistent erosion of the Palestinian presence, heritage and culture in Jerusalem. The status quo agreement is over 60 years old now. Maybe it's time for a change, a new agreement, a new status quo. So the ideal update that needs to be made is to move from a conflict management situation to a conflict resolution situation, because eventually the status quo was set and implemented in a state of conflict, and it reflects on the dynamics between the sides. Now, we do not foresee a two-state solution coming anytime soon. But if we're talking about alternative to the status quo, updating to the status quo, the positive side will be to have Israelis and Palestinians finally agree on what their joint future uh, in the land should look like, according to the two-state solution, and uh, turning Jerusalem from a point of conflict to a point of prosperity, and therefore placing the relationship around the holy sites perhaps 
in the hands of a more international body that will be doing so in the spirit of cooperation. Moving from a point of conflict to a point of prosperity. Certainly a worthwhile ambition. But sadly, with the current makeup of the Israeli government, it's an ambition that's becoming ever more distant. At the start of November, Israelis went to the polls again and back from the political desert came Benjamin Netanyahu. And this time, he came supported by far-right Israeli religious nationalists. One of them is Bezalel Smotrich, a self-proclaimed, quote, proud homophobe who has made open calls for ethnic cleansing and called for a teenage protester to be shot in the knees. Smotrich has been appointed to the Defence Ministry and is now responsible for overseeing illegal settlements in the West Bank. And then there's Itamar Ben-Gavir, who, like Smotrich, is an Israeli who lives in an illegal settlement and was previously a member of a Jewish armed group that was designated as a terror organisation. Ben-Gavir was named as the National Security Minister and is now responsible for Israel's police. With Netanyahu back, supported by the far right, many in Palestine and its supporters have been understandably worried. We're having now the most right-wing government in Israel's history in place. It's a government that includes basically the Likud, Netanyahu's party, as the biggest pillar. It includes two ultra-Orthodox parties, Ashkenazi and Sephardi, which usually are part of the coalitions in Israel. Um, and it closed a far-right fraction that ran under a, one umbrella but are now split into three fractions within the parliament that, in, that have really actors that were considered illegitimate in Israeli politics until a year or two ago. Uh, people with a very negative history of provocations, of incitement, of racism. Uh, that's really a game-changer in terms of Israeli politics. It's not really about left versus right and criticism on policy. It's about the basic values of you know, Israeli democracy and liberal values and, and what happens to the social cohesion within Israel, to Israel's foreign policy, to Israel's security, to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, a lot of threats. So it's just the beginning. The government has been in place for, you know, let's say, a couple of weeks, but it doesn't look good. And it's important to remember that about 50% of the Israelis do not support this government. And there's a growing uh, movement of pushback of protest against what this government is doing and is intending to do, so I think that will be a very significant factor of what we'll be seeing happening in Israel in the coming uh, years. Indeed, Netanyahu's honeymoon period was over before it ever really started, when massive protests erupted in Israel, with people opposing the far-right makeup of the government. I came here today with uh, apparently thousands of people. This is the first time and it's going to last way longer than that because uh, we have a problem here in Israel. Extremists are starting to deploy, let's say it like this, their forces uh, abroad and it's not the majority. Thousands of years of history, the status quo and Israel's far-right government brings us back to where we started. Itamar Ben-Gavir at Al-Aqsa Mosque on January 3rd. So what was he doing there? Ben 
Tanvir wanted to send uh, a couple of messages through his visit to Al-Aqsa last week. The fact that he went to Al-Aqsa only a few days after the new Netanyahu government was sworn in reflects, I think, his intention to show to Netanyahu and to the Israeli public and also the Palestinian public as well, who is the boss. He wants to show who is the boss and to send a message that he will not back down on his plans to visit uh, Al-Aqsa. And so he's basically showing that he doesn't care about taking any major provocative steps that could ignite bloodshed with Palestinians or a confrontation with the rest of the Arab Muslim world. The other thing um, he wants to achieve is to affirm Jewish sovereignty over this holy site in a very similar way to what Sharon did in 2000 when he entered Al-Aqsa and was accompanied by over 1,000, I think, armed Israeli soldiers and uh, policemen. But now, Ben-Gvir wants to take another step forward by further entrenching and formalizing Jewish authority and power over Al-Aqsa in a very concrete way by seeking, for example, to make more unilateral changes to the status quo at Al-Aqsa, for example, by wanting to allow Jewish visitors um, to pray on the Al-Aqsa compound. His visit is a clear provocation. But Itamar Ben-Gavir isn't the first Israeli to go to Al-Aqsa. He's not even the first settler to go, nor even the first Israeli politician. So why is his recent incursion so significant? So basically, Ben-Gavir used to visit Al-Aqsa before. But now it's different because he's heading um, a new national security ministry, which is a new position that gives him authority over the regular police and also the border police, which operates inside Israel and in the occupied Palestinian territories to quell protests, to demolish houses, etc. So now we're talking about Ben Gvir, who has direct control over the Israeli police. He outlines uh, its, its policy. So he has unprecedented power in his hands. And that's significant because the police forces that should theoretically work on enforcing the status quo at Al-Aqsa, they are now under the authority of a minister who has been calling for more unilateral changes to the status on Al-Aqsa compound. So when entering Al-Aqsa now, Ben Gvir is basically his own boss. He can make the rules as he likes because he's controlling the police force and its policy vis-à-vis Al-Aqsa and vis-à-vis Palestinians. Across Palestine, there was real anger at Ben Gavir's incursion at Al-Aqsa. And with Al-Aqsa being not only an important site and symbol for Palestine, but also a revered Islamic site, many were looking at the rest of the Arab world for support and condemnation. And condemnation did come. The UAE foreign ministry called for, quote, the need to respect the custodial role of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan over the holy sites and endowments in accordance with international law and the historical situation at hand. Jordan said the storming had breached international law and, quote, the historic and legal status quo in Jerusalem, while Saudi Arabia described the storming as a, quote, provocative action. But beyond words, there was no real commitment to hold Israel accountable, as noted by Riyad Mansour, Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations. We will not be satisfied with beautiful statements which will be uttered tomorrow in the Security Council. We want them to be implemented in a concrete way. We want 
this behavior not to be repeated in Al-Aqsa Mosque and in Haram Sharif, and we want a guarantee of honoring and respecting the historic status quo in deeds, not only in words. And now some are asking the question as to whether other Arab nations, in particular those that normalized relations with Israel, have the will or ability to hold the worst excesses of this new Israeli government to account. What we have is a government that will advance a policy that will be very coherent against some of the issues that those countries really care about, which especially is a Palestinian issue. I think Jordan was very clear in how it related to the new Israeli government, emphasizing the warnings of potential policies that the government could take that could um, create a lack of stability in the region and will have negative consequences. On the other hand, most of the countries um, you know, welcomed the government, not because they wanted it, but because that's what the Israeli public voted and uh, stated that they are willing to continue and cooperate with it. The UAE and Bahrain went an extra step that wasn't necessary to actually meet with Ben Gvir and Smotich. Their ambassadors on the ground respectively met with these two far-right politicians. I think that disappointed large parts of the Israeli society that appreciate the Abraham Accords, but do not want to see that as a step that legitimizes extreme actors within the Israeli society. So that was surprising. Now, um, the UAE did join other countries in criticizing the Benville step. It did, took a leading role within the Security Council and enabling the debate to take place. Uh, but it was mostly, as seen in Israel, a procedural uh, thing. There was a debate in the Security Council. There was no statement coming out uh, later. Uh, the criticism was was voiced um, not only by the Arab countries, also by the US and others in countries in Europe. But again, that's where it stopped. So it gave an indication how countries will react, which countries care more or which care less. Uh, but at the moment, that was it. Yeah, so we heard several condemnations from Arab and Western governments, but we've become so accustomed to hearing empty words by governments, while no actions whatsoever are taken to hold Israel accountable for the illegality of uh, its enterprise and so and the measures it's undertaking. So what needs to be done um, by governments is to hold Israel accountable and end the culture of impunity that Israel has been enjoying for, for, uh, for far too long. And here, I think citizens can play an important role by putting more pressure on their respective governments to hold Israel accountable. International governments don't currently seem poised to hold Israel accountable for its oppressive policies. And if the likes of Ben Gavir continue to provoke, then like in 2000, bloodshed could soon follow. So the chances of escalation are there. It could happen because of different issues. We already saw in the last few months a rise in the number of violence incidents happening between Israelis and Palestinians before this government was even voted in. Um, definitely, if visits like Benville's continue and intensify, that will fuel these uh, tensions even more. So it doesn't have to be that the Intifada will start because of that. It will start because of other things. But that's definitely a scenario that we need to, to consider. Even if there's a no Intifada being launched, then what is happening now changes the dynamics in the region, which used to be a very positive one, or a rather positive one, starting the Abraham Accord signing a couple of years ago. Um, an environment of more cooperation, more engagement, more dialogue. You see it spilling over to other regions. You know, in the Mediterranean era, 
There are different uh, regional groupings coming to life. Israel, Lebanon, that reached a deal on the energy issues, MOUs of Israel and Egypt and the EU. So all kind of cooperative mechanisms have been put into place, direct and indirect. If we're going back to a kind of negative framing of the dynamics of uh, threats of escalation, of preventive diplomacy, I think these positive dynamics will be more difficult to continue and we'll be losing out on a lot of the potential that the new relationships in the Middle East will uh, enable. Uh, the way to avoid that is also to remember that relationships between countries are not only limited to what the leadership is doing. It's not only about government to government, there's civil society, there's the business uh, sector, there's a lot of others within society who can move things forward even when governmental relations are not at their peak. We saw that happening between Israel and Turkey during a decade of very tense political relations. It was civil society and business that managed to keep those relationships on some sort of a positive track. That could happen now as well if there will be political escalation between leadership of Israel in the region. And when it comes to dealing with international governments and seeking foreign cooperation, Netanyahu and his new far-right support will have an additional challenge that Netanyahu never really fully experienced during his previous tenures, the recognition of an apartheid. I think that this shift in the perception of Israel can be significant because legally speaking, um, apartheid is a war crime. Uh, it's, a, it's a crime against humanity and it's viewed as uh, a violation of international law. So Israel has legal responsibility for its acts of apartheid and other states and the UN have the responsibility to ensure an end to apartheid, including by adopting international measures like sanctions. So the growing use of this framework in international arenas might prompt in the future, it might be in the long run, might prompt states uh, to put more pressure on Israel and impose sanctions. But ultimately, I believe that Israel will be forced to end its current system of injustice, discrimination, and its colonial enterprise when the costs of maintaining this regime are much higher than the benefits. And this would happen if Israel no longer enjoys the culture of unconditional impunity that it uh, is currently enjoying. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Felp. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for, and you can find the link for that in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinions from the region. (laughs) 